I'm starting a series this morning that I'm calling Jesus People. And some of you recognize that sort of name as uh, there was a movement, a charismatic sort of hippie Christian movement that started in the late 60s and 70s in the California area. And this uh, sort of Jesus People revolution uh, is credited with hundreds of thousands and possibly more uh, salvations, uh, people that have come to Christ as there was this surge of hippies, unchurched hip, hippies who came to Jesus in the 60s and 70s as a result of the radical witness of men and women like them. And, and our vineyard movement, which is a charismatic movement that started in the late 60s and 70s uh, in Southern California, has some connection in some meaningful way to the Jesus people. But I'm not describing in this series the Jesus people movement or that particular group. I'm using this expression, Jesus people, to describe for us who we're supposed to be. Uh, because being followers of Jesus, being Christians, is not about being moral. It's not just about being nice. It's not about checking a box. But this whole notion of being Jesus people marks for us a way of life. We're called. We're commanded to be like Jesus in every possible way, to use his standard and his principles and his life and his worldview to guide how we build our life, how we live our life, how we go about our everyday, workaday life as citizens of this earthly world, but as, all, as dual citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, people, is a great description of who we're called to be. And I don't know about you, that title is a little striking because on the one hand you have Jesus, who's way up here, altogether holy, infinitely wise, infinitely patient, uh, incorruptibly just, right? Can find value in the lowliest of people, and all these things about Jesus that puts him on this really high and holy plane. And the other part of this is you have, right, the people. The humans who even on our best day uh, shake out to be oftentimes the exact opposite of who Jesus is. And the beauty of being invited into God's big story, the beauty of being invited into what Jesus wants to do here in the earth is Jesus takes his holiness, his righteousness, his patience, his goodness, his long-suffering, his valuing of all human life, no matter where they are on the spectrum of wealth or success, and he pairs that goodness with our, our humanity. And he doesn't allow our humanity to pull him down to where we are. He instead calls us higher. He instead lifts us up. He, he instead transforms us and makes us something new, something we could never become apart from his connection to us. We are Jesus' people. Jesus says this in John chapter 15, verse 1. He says, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more fruit. 
He continues, you have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me and I will remain in you for a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you what? Remain in me. And so I think this passage in John chapter 15 captures well what Jesus does to us and what he does for us and what he does in us when he attaches his name and all the stuff of heaven and all the stuff of his character and likeness to our broken, sinful, selfish, corrupted humanity. He calls us higher. He deals with the things in our life that sometimes we don't want to deal with. He prunes and instructs. He puts his finger on certain things to call us higher. Why? Because he's got some work here for us to do. And we'd be just perfect Christians. We'd be just perfect specimens of heaven going around, spreading cheer to the world, being a blessing to the world, if it weren't for our, our, our humanity, right? Oftentimes I think, I would be a great Christian. I would be a phenomenal, perfect Christian if I, if I weren't so human. But in our quest to be Jesus' people, I feel like we got to give Jesus some license, some permission to deal with our humanity. And as I begin this series, I want to start by talking about our humanity, because if we don't deal with acknowledge our humanity we don't stand a chance to becoming Jesus people right and so I just want to deal with that in this first installment of this series I'm simply calling this message this morning if you need a title the human factor the human factor Jesus by the way is aware of the human factor uh, particularly how it complicates our ascension to being Jesus' people, how it complicates our progression toward the things of God. And he works really hard throughout Scripture uh, and in communities like this, through the work of the Spirit, to make us aware of the human factor. He works really hard to make us aware of the things that could disqualify us, the things that keep us stuck and the things that keep us from being who he's called us to be. And it's striking, if you have eyes to see it, how often Jesus is, not in a condemning way, but in a very fruitful, very constructive, a very helpful way, pointing out the portions of our humanity that run counter to what he's trying to do in our life. This passage that we'll look at today is no different. Matthew chapter 26, would you meet me there? Uh, in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 26, we're going to start at verse 17 as we discuss the human factor. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some Bibles on the edges of your rows. You can also feel free to uh, interact with the scriptures through your uh, tablets or through your phones. I'm not at all offended if you're using a device this morning. Matthew chapter 26, we'll start at verse 7. While you're yet finding that, let me pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you so much. For your word and your truth. I thank you for this opportunity to worship you and the company of your people. I thank you for your spirit that you pour out on us. I thank you, Father, that you've invited us into something bigger than ourselves. I thank, thank you, Lord, that holy God would 
but find in us something that he'd want to use, something he might want to work with. And so, Father, I pray that you would teach us today. I pray that you would show us today. You would instruct us. You would point out the things in us that complicate our movement toward you. Father, would you go before us this morning and make the crooked places straight? Would you deal ruthlessly, Lord, with anything in us that might bristle at the truth or make our hearts anything less than a soft landing place for the things you want to say today? Come, Holy Spirit. Put power on these words you've given me to speak. Move the preacher out of, your, out of the way so that your truth and light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 26. It's a fitting passage to read as we head into Easter Sunday. We see Jesus and his disciples right before he's handed over to die. We pick up the story, verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread... The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? As you go into the city, he told them, You will see a certain man. Tell him, The teacher says, My time has come, and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. That's pretty bold, right? So the disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared the Passover meal there. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? He replied, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me, for the Son of Man must die as the Scripture declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, the one who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, take this and eat, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people it is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. They sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Verse 31. On the way, Jesus told them, tonight, all of you will desert me. He, he's, he's, he's digging in here. All of you will desert me. For the scripture says, God will strike the shepherd. And the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never, underscore never, desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you even know me. No, Peter insisted. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed to do the same. So we find ourselves in this particular episode of Jesus' life. He's interacting with his disciples. And the scriptures tell us that this is right before that they're uh, about to have the Passover feast. The Passover is the commemoration by the Jewish people of their liberation from slavery and Egypt and this sort of Passover feast 
that they're preparing for, that they're about to have with Jesus, is the sort of ritual feast that marks the beginning of the Jewish holiday, uh, Passover. But Jesus has this, we, we, we're witnessing this interaction that Jesus is having with his guys. And Jesus, as if you study Jesus, if you read the scripture, he has this unique way of bringing our, humani you know, our, our humanity to our attention. He has this unique way of sort of putting a mirror in front of us. Again, not a condemning mirror, but Jesus has this almost sort of antagonistic way of highlighting our humanity. In other words, Jesus loves to stir the pot. We're going along as Christians, feeling good that we've checked off our boxes. We've given some money to the poor. We've come to church once a month. We're feeling good about ourselves. And then we read the scripture. And then we hear a sermon. Or then God uses somebody to reflect to us who we are. Point out something within us that we hadn't quite noticed or that we lost sight of. Jesus loves to stir the pot. I read earlier John chapter 15. It says God continues to prune those branches that are connected so that they can bear much fruit. And if you've been Christian for more than two weeks, you've experienced that pruning, right? You've experienced Jesus saying hard things to us. Jesus pressing into places that we'd rather him not press into. Jesus awakening our understanding to things that we just as soon continue to forget. Jesus loves to stir the pot. This isn't news for some of you who are Jesus people, but those of you who are here today, you just sort of kicked in the tires, you're looking into the window of faith. Uh, Jesus will stir your pot as well. You might do so before you go home today. And so it's a given that Jesus likes to stir the pot and shake things up a little bit. The question is, how will we respond to that stirring? The real question is, how will we respond? How will we react to that shaking? The sad truth is that many of us don't respond well. The truth is, really, there's only two ways to respond to Jesus when he stirs our pot. There's only two ways to respond to Jesus when he shakes our tree and when he shakes things up and when he points out our humanity. You're probably guessing you can either respond well or you can respond poorly. You could either lean in or you can lean away. And so, you, interestingly enough, in this passage that we read today, we see those two responses right in front of us as almost a little bit of a case study uh, about how we respond when Jesus points out some things in our life that are unflattering. And as we walk through these two things today, these two ways to respond, you might just sort of quietly ask yourself, which one am I? Which response am I prone to lean into as Jesus points out the human factors in our lives? The first type of response we see in this text is the response of humble ignorance. Humble ignorance. And I think the key word there is humble humility, right? And this whole notion of humble ignorance is kind of one of my favorite phrases these days because as a person who does uh, the work of reconciliation, who does a lot of speaking and influencing with regard to 
uh, race issues and uh, multi-ethnic church and just some of the hot button issues. I've just decided today that I'm just not going to engage with anybody who doesn't possess a good measure of humble ignorance. I'm not going to fight with somebody who's combative and who's trying to, you know, who's trying to win and somebody who's trying to best me. I just, when I was younger, I had plenty of energy for that. These days, I'm looking for, particularly in myself, this posture of humble ignorance in every meaningful way of my area of my life. And something tells me that Jesus is looking for this as well. Jesus comes to his guys and he points out something in them and uh, it's not very flattering. What does he point out? Verse 20 tells us, when it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the 12. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. How's that for dinner conversation? Let me set the scene for you. They're not sitting at a table, but they're sort of reclining at a low table, just sort of leaning, real, real cool-like. Passing this food at the communal table. They're having their meals. And they're just talking about the day. Jesus, hey, could somebody pass me the rib? We probably weren't eating ribs, but could you somebody pass me the unleavened bread? Oh, would you pass the wine? And by the way, one of you snakes is going to stab me in the back. You could just hear the record player start, you know. As one of you will betray me. I think, Jesus, maybe you could ease into that. Maybe you could have maybe sent them an email, say, hey, I got some heavy things to discuss tonight. Come prepared to discuss something heavy. It just seems like Jesus, in, in his old Jesusian way, loved to just spring things on them, Right? Now, this is the equivalent of you having a nice dinner with your spouse and you're just talking about the day and them just piping in and say, hey, I know you're going to cheat on me. Or you're having a nice lunch with one of your colleagues. Hey, I know you're going to stab me in the back for that promotion. Please pass the salt, right? <laughs> and you can imagine dozens of scenarios where you're just having these sweet relational moments in like, in drops something. And I'll be the first to say that Jesus strikes me as kind of a weird guy sometimes. Strikes me as a weird kind of guy who just loves to just kind of stir the pot and rock the boat. It, it almost seems like Jesus is trying to catch people off guard. Almost seems like he's trying to be jarring and trying to stir us and trying to just suddenly shake us with something heavy. And if it seems that way, I think it seems that way because it might actually be the case that Jesus loves to catch us off guard. Jesus loves to talk to us or deal with some heavy things when we don't expect to deal with those heavy things. Why? Because our humanity, the way our weak and frail humanity is set up, we, we love to try to project strength when we're weak. We love to pretend. We love to put up facades. We love to protect ourselves. And that defense mechanism has us fronting and pretending and trying to be prepared and rehearsed and slick. Projecting strength when we're weak, projecting knowledge when we're ignorant, projecting confidence when we're insecure. 
projecting happiness when we're sad, projecting unbotheredness. I don't care when you care a whole lot. Projecting indifference when you actually care a great deal. Psalmist tells us that God desires honesty down into our inward parts. And Jesus knows how to extract the truth from us even when we're hardwired to pretend. Jesus knows how to get at the core and essence of who we are even when we're hardwired to try to put on a good face and pretend that everything is okay. Jesus knows that if I spring it on them before they can think about it, if I slip in there real quick, real easy like during the meal, they won't see it coming and I have perhaps the best opportunity to catch them when their defenses are down, catch them before they can cook something up. It's not that Jesus is trying to see what's in us. He knows. Not that Jesus is like, let me, let me notes. Oh, I, there's a hole in my understanding about Tarn. There's a hole in my understanding about Ben. Let me go and get some information so I can just sort of God better. It's typically the case that Jesus wants us to see something that we hadn't seen in ourselves. He wants to awaken our hearts and our understanding to something that we've missed. And perhaps as a casual explanation for why Jesus is just so weird sometimes, so jarring at times, is that perhaps he knows that we're most honest when we haven't had time to whip something up. And so in an effort to do this, Jesus cuts us real quick and just watches what comes out. I love how this works. I love how it works. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. And their answer is so telling. Their answer is, is to me so precious and so sweet, so honest, so humble, altogether ignorant. The response is this, am I the one, Lord? Another translation say, is it me, Lord? And a younger guy read this, and I go, come on, man. You know if it's you. <laughs> but the older I get, you know, the more I walk with Jesus, the more I, I resonate with it. My suspicion is that as they all sort of go look around the table, I am, is it me, Lord? And Jesus says, come Jesus didn't throw his hand like, come on, man. I don't think he's frustrated with this. I don't think he's annoyed with this. I, I think this is right where we're supposed to be, like this humble ignorance, this, 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 this like lowly response, this, like you're the master. I, I didn't think I was capable of that, but like Jesus, you said it. We've watched you do miracles. We know heaven lives within you. You haven't led us astray yet. Like, if Jesus says this, like, I've got a follow-up question. Is it, is it me? Is it me, Lord? 
Am I the one? You know, it's striking to me, and it might be interesting to you that, that it wasn't obvious to them who it was. Think about that for a second. We're reading these accounts, you know, like after they've happened, so we know the story, you know, about Judas, and we go, of course, you know, Judas? Yeah, anybody, Judas, right? But in, in real time, it's striking to me that it wasn't obvious to them who, who it was going to be. One of my favorite preachers, Tim Keller, um, said, uh, uh, as he was expositing this text, he said, it was really interesting that they didn't know that Judas was going to be the betrayer. You never hear the disciples saying, you know what, we knew it was Judas, because when he prayed for sick people, they never got healed. You guys remember that? Like, they never would get healed. I didn't think about it at the time. I just thought maybe he was in a slump, but they never, they never got healed. Or, you know what, whenever Judas would cast out demons, the demons wouldn't, like, we'd have to come and help them. And it makes so much sense now, right? But Judas was never, he never shared the gospel quite right. He didn't get the words quite right. He was always off to himself. It was not obvious to them. Right? Because when Judas prayed, people got healed. When he went out to cast out demons and when he went to do ministry, like the, I mean, this, it was working, right? It wasn't obvious to them. But their posture, their response to Jesus as he, as he throws this sort of wrench into their meal is like, dang, it could, it could very much be me. Lord, is it me? No, is it me? Lord, is it me? The older I get, and, and the, the more I walk with Jesus, the more this is my reaction when Jesus puts his finger on something. When he reminds me of something that I am very capable of. It used to be when I see a preacher fall, step out on his wife, blow his whole life up for a few nights with the secretary, you know, I go, what, what an idiot. I would never do that. I would always be aware of the stakes. I'm, I'm much too put together for that. Maybe something else, but not that. These days, when I see it on the news, I go, Lord, help me. Lord, is that in me? Lord, is, is it possible that I would blow up my family in that? Lord, would you? Would you keep me, but, but for the grace of God, go I am more than capable of it. Lord, I'm humble. I'm ignorant about the future. I'm even ignorant about my own proclivities and what might be in me. Like, this is not a stupid way to respond to this. This is like the sweet spot of where we should be. This is the humble posture, sitting cross-legged in front of the Savior as he tells us about ourselves, the good, bad, and the ugly, especially the ugly. Lord, is it me? Paul, our mature brother in the faith, knew very well. He said, there's nothing good in me apart from Christ. I am a mess, he says. The stuff I want to do I know I should do, I don't do. The stuff I know I shouldn't do, I do. Paul's in touch. He said, it's, it, I'm a mess. Humility. The type of humility that says, I am capable of anything. 
particularly if my master brings it to my attention. Humble ignorance. Jesus says it to me directly by his spirit. Jesus says it to me in the word. Or if Jesus uses one of his vessels, one of my friends, somebody who's got some authority in my life to bring something to my attention, it's at least worth pondering. At least deserve to look into the matter humble ignorance. Interestingly enough, even Judas responds well in this in this part right now if you read verse 14 Jesus had just made an arrangement to sell the savior out and yet when Jesus puts this on the table Judas says rabbi am I the one and if I was there, like man you know you're the one you got the coins jingling in your pocket right now you're the one but in the sweet unguarded moment like Judas even says it you know it might have been part of the whole act, right? Nonetheless, he says, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus gives him a quick answer. Bingo, joker, yeah, it's you. Humble ignorance. I don't know what I don't know. But I know the one who knows it all. And when he darkens my door with something like this, it behooves me to listen Do we respond with humble ignorance when Jesus brings something to us? There's a second way to respond to Jesus when he points out the human factor. The second way to respond to this is with prideful indignation. Prideful indignation. Uh, And let me just say before I dig into this that don't let this be you. This is the bad one. This is the inappropriate one. This is the one that stunts growth. This is one that neutralizes transformation. This is the one that you don't want to camp out here. And what's interesting is that we haven't switched characters as we point this out. Like, these are the, it's the same group. This is the same people. Further in the story, verse 31, on the way Jesus told them, tonight, all of you will desert me. I mean, Jesus is really turning the screws. But the scripture says, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will scatter. You all will desert me, Jesus says. And how do they respond? Not too good this time. Now, I told you a few minutes ago that Jesus likes to spring things on us, right? He likes to catch us off guard so that we can't edit and put something together and put on our mask and our makeup, right? But this time... They are in full human mode, and they've had a little bit of time to think about what Jesus said earlier. You got got me earlier. If you come with something else, I'm going to be ready. And they were ready to do that human thing that we do, pretend, put up facades. Jesus said, you're all going to betray me. Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you. This is so funny because we know the story, right? I will never desert you. Peter said, Jesus, slow down, my man. Pump your brakes. (laughs) Before the roosters crow, bro, you will deny me and even curse at those who try to make a connection between you and me. And Jesus says, Peter said, no, I insist. I will not. I will die for you if I have to. 
and all the other jokers hop in line and do their own human thing, right? With, with this prideful indignation, Jesus, how dare you? We've walked with you. We've served with you. Forget the fact that a few minutes ago we were asking each other in hushed tones, is it me, is it you, is it me, is it you? But in this particular moment, they just can't even be bothered to think about it. Insulted that it would even be brought up, spoken about out loud, they're pretending. Same authority that they given Jesus to speak on the matter just moments ago. They've taken it back. They know more than Jesus now. They're prideful. They're arrogant. Self-righteous. Until a casual observer taking a passing glance, this might seem noble. This might seem like confident. But, but like we read the rest of the story and there's nothing noble about this. I don't think that Peter was lying per se because if his humble response just moments ago taught us anything, it's that he did not know what he was capable of. And our moments of pridefulness and self-righteousness, that same ignorance that just moments ago was humble ignorance turns into arrogant ignorance and there's not a worse strand of ignorance. You know somebody who is arrogantly ignorant like everybody knows the truth except for them and they're loud and proud about it and really they end up looking foolish right they don't know what they don't know and they don't know it and this is the reaction even if I have to die I will never deny you and if you translate those words, you get in Jesus' face, you take your finger and say, you are a liar. Maybe you don't have the gumption, or maybe you regard the Lord too highly to call him a liar. Maybe you might also point that same finger and say, you don't know what you're talking about. And honestly, I don't know which one is worse. Whether you think that Jesus is lying or just trying to harm you or he doesn't know what he's talking about, yeah, the root of that, it's denying his omniscience. It's denying that he knows what's going on. It's elevating yourself and your understanding and your limited scope of your, even your own life to a higher plane than the God who spoke to nothing and created everything we see. And while the world was going about following its orders, you were created by the hands of God from the dust, and the dust is telling God, I know more than you, I don't know, which is more slap in the face, calling God a liar, or saying, you don't know what's up. This is helpful, dare I say, necessary, if we want to get on with the business of being Jesus' people, we will never, ever outgrow. Never ever mature to the place where God stops putting his finger on things in our life. Speaking truth to us that we'd rather ignore. We will never outgrow it. And so if we wish to be transformed, if we wish to partner with God in his great story, if we wish to bless this community and be the hands and feet of Jesus, we must learn to respond well, not if, but when Jesus comes 
up and say, hey, what are you going to do about that? Hey, I noticed this, or I noticed that. What's that thing behind your back, the thing that you're trying? You need to work on that. Who your response be a response of humble ignorance or prideful indignation? I ask that because it's helpful to know, and I'll land it with this, that, that, that there's a reason, that there's a reason why Jesus does this. Oh, if you walk with Jesus for any length of time, at times you can just kind of feel beat up by Jesus. Is it just me? <laughs> the murmur that went throughout the room is, is a confirming yes, I'll just keep moving, right? <laughs> Coming to church, you're listening to the message, you want something that tells you how awesome you are and how good you are and how you're on the stairway to heaven, and the preacher just puts a mirror in front of you. You're like, ugh. But there's a reason. Jesus has his reasons. He has his reasons. He's not just kicking up dust here. And particularly when you look at a pastor's like this, you're like, Jesus, you were about to die. Like, your parting words to us should, like, uplift us. Give us, you know, something to hang our hats on. Give us, tell us what you like about us. You're about to die. Why even bother? But what we know about Jesus' death is it's just the beginning. And what we'll celebrate next week is his triumphant resurrection. And so his death is not the end. It's just the beginning. And these knuckleheads just happen to be the key components to his plan of spreading the gospel everywhere on the heels of resurrection with zeal and fervor preaching the gospel to all the corners of the world. These guys are part of the deal and so are you and me. And so Jesus has to keep knocking on our door. He has to keep rattling our chains. He has to keep stirring the pot because we are the part of the plan. And what you need to understand is that the worst thing Jesus could do to you is leave you alone. I'm going to let that marinate for a few seconds. Because some of you, that's your prayer. God, give me a break. Jesus, leave me alone. Get out of my business. Go tend to somebody else. And what the Spirit of heaven says to you today, and somebody, we all need to hear, but somebody really needs to hear this because you're annoyed with God. You want him to go away from you. You want him to stop talking to you. You want him to stop holding up a mirror. You want him to stop calling you higher and stop calling you to a place where he brings out the best in you. You want him to stop talking to you about your friends and stop talking to you about how you manage your sexuality. Stop talking to you about how you spend your money and stop talking about your circle of friends that's dragging you down. The worst thing he could do is go silent. The absolute worst thing he can do is leave you alone and stop checking on you and stop pointing out the areas of humanity that might disqualify follow you. Stop calling you higher. Stop calling you, reminding you that you are made for 
more and stop reminding you that those that you deserve better than the people that you keep putting in your life, the worst thing you could do is stop dealing with the human factors in your life. It's because he loved them. He had a plan for them. And that he needed them to do his kingdom work as he needs you and I, that he simply won't leave us alone. And part of the comfort of his presence isn't just the warm fuzzies, but is that sharpening, that calling higher, that pruning, right? That transformation that's a part of the deal. Worship team, you can come up as I close. The only question that remains, since we know what we know, is how will you respond? How will you respond? Will you respond with humility, faithful, appropriate ignorance when Jesus comes and sets his truth before you? Or will you respond with arrogant ignorance or a prideful indignation when Jesus comes calling? We understand that there is a reason why Jesus does what he does. And the very worst thing he can do is leave us alone. Like if we allow that to minister to us, if we allow Jesus to speak truth in that way to us this morning, I feel that we are well on our way to being Jesus people, embracing it, adopting it as a way of life. And the world around us will be better for it. We'll pick this up next week. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word and truth. Thank you, Father, for stirring our pots. Thankful for the helpful discovery that the worst thing you can do is go silent. The worst thing you can do, Lord, is stop meddling and stop putting your fingers on things that we need you to touch. Father, would you teach us? Would you help us to understand our role in your kingdom plan? And Father, may we not just listen, but may we receive. And may we just not receive, but may we in faith respond everything that you do and say in our lives. May your spirit work within us this week to move us toward who you want us to be. Come Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. amen.